So 1 John chapter 4, 7 to 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought, to, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of God. I um, just want to echo Jez's welcome. It really is great to uh, be with you all if you're watching from home um, and great to be here in the room with everyone as well. It is, um, I'm on the introverted side of things for sure, but uh, even so, it is great just, just to be seeing so many new faces and everyone back again. And if you're at home and you haven't actually come along to one of our Sundays here in the building yet, we'd love to have you um, some point over the next couple of weeks. Um, the passage that Jez just read to us is one of the clearest explanations of the gospel uh, in the Bible, and it's, it's, it's profound, it's deep, and so we're going to be like looking at that right now. But I thought before that, we'll just pray and spend some time actually asking God to be with us in this time, that we'd be actually ready just to kind of see him, hear from him, and encounter him. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can gather uh, more and more uh, in, in person, but, it, but even online as well that it's a time to, uh, to have in our weeks where we can actually uh, hear from you. Lord, we pray for anyone who's listening along today who's maybe exploring you or trying to, to find out if you're even there. We ask that this would be a time that you would be uh, speaking powerfully to each and every one of us, that we would actually walk away changed because of what you reveal to us today. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, C.S. Lewis, who uh, many of you would know as the author of the Narnia Chronicles, in another one of his works of fiction, The Great Divorce, he tells the story of a group of travelers who take a day trip from hell to heaven. Um, And so at the very beginning of this story, a a group of of individuals meet at a bus stop in a grey town and seems completely deserted. They wait for this bus that eventually comes and they hop on and it takes them up into the sky. And the, the main character, the narrator of this story, observes as he's getting higher and higher into the sky that, that what he thought was a town was in fact this huge city, spreading out as far as the eye could see. He looks out and he sees rows and rows and rows and rows of houses in every single direction. And so he turns to one of his other passengers on the bus and he says, kind of, what gives? Why, why does the place seem so deserted when there's so many houses? There used to be more people. If people left, kind of, what's going on? But the explanation he gets is this. Um, he gets told by another passenger that whenever anyone would arrive in this town, they would move into a house, but with, before too long would end up quarreling with one of their neighbours. They'd get frustrated, and so they would move to, a, to another house on the outskirts of town. But before long, another new arrival would also move onto the outskirts, and before long, they would quarrel, they would get annoyed at each other, and so one of them would move out further, further still. And the catch is, in this town, you only had to think of a house and it was there, and so without real builders or any materials, there was nothing stopping people from moving again and again and again. And so as the years rolled on, hundreds and thousands of years, the city got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, 
spread in all directions, but with every single occupant living in complete isolation. And it's you know, obviously very imaginative, imaginative and, 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 and whatever, but it's, it's curious that in C.S. Lewis's imagination, hell could be summed up as a world in which no one made any effort with anyone. People would, would not make any effort to love their neighbours, that they would just be happy to go about living a life, a selfish life in isolation just by themselves. And curiously, C.S. Lewis wrote this story in 1946, just after the end of World War II, and he was writing in England when camaraderie and community were at an all-time high following the need to pull together during the Second World War. But he identified that people have kind of something in us that left to its own devices without anything to kind of stop it would lead to a relational wasteland where community and relationships are eroded. Now, I reckon it's the case that in 2020, we've moved a little bit further along the spectrum towards C.S. Lewis's depiction of hell. Um, People are having less connections, less community, and you could even argue that there's just less evidence of love for for people's neighbours. Robert Putnam, who wrote uh, Bowling Alone, uh, who was a social scientist, spent his career tracking the decline of community in the Western world. And he, he showed a bunch of pretty harrowing statistics between 1985 and 1994, so that's a nine-year period before the internet even existed, he tracked that community involvement in community organizations fell by 45%. A key uh, question he uses in his research is, over, over many years, asking groups of people, how many confidants do you have? That is, how many people do you have in your life that you're comfortable sharing the deepest, kind of most inner workings of what's going on for you? And a couple of decades ago, the most common answer when you're surveying a large group of people was three. But now, the most common answer is zero. That is more, the most common answer that most people would have is they have got no one in their life that they feel comfortable sharing the deepest things going on. David Brooks, the New York Times journalist, in one of his books exploring the erosion of community life, um, said that 8% of Americans report having important conversations with their neighbours over a given year. And I reckon that's the same probably as here as Australia because for most of us, we don't find that surprising because I reckon most of us are in the 92% of people who over the course of a whole year wouldn't have a single important conversation with one of our neighbours. And that doesn't surprise a lot of us, but I think if you existed in in most communities in the world and most points in time, that would be baffling that you could live alongside someone, even the other side of a wall or or, or 20 metres away, and over 12 months not even have a single deep conversation. In 1950, less than 10% of households were single-person households, but now 30% are, and I just double-checked as well. In Balmain, it's 31.1%. So as you walk around Balmain, 30% of the homes have only got one person living in them, which is way up on 50 years ago. And this decline of community and relationships is having huge effects on society. Johan Hari wrote a book on the, on the causes of depression, and he argues that the skyrocketing rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide that you see across the Western world are inseparable from this reality that deep connections to one another are being destroyed. Having a society that is starved for deep relationships invariably just casts shadow on the whole thing. He sums it up by saying, loneliness hangs over our culture today like a thick smog. And I reckon most of us can relate to this, and we've maybe even experienced it, whether it's firsthand experiencing loneliness or having someone that's just one degree of separation from you that you care about who has. And like Jez was getting at, I reckon COVID has put a bit of a spotlight on this phenomenon in our society. 
for many people, the experience of going into lockdown caused a spike in, in, in mental illness. It's been a painful experience, in part because one of the things that happened with that is it's compounded loneliness for people who are already feeling lonely. Or it's exposed it, because for many people, busyness, whether it's the busyness of work or just feeling you know, the, the different activities and social engagements people have, can kind of mask the fact that many people don't actually have a deep sense of community. Most people don't have a deep relationships in their lives. Or like Jess was saying, maybe, and probably if you're more on the kind of introspective side of the thing, it may even feel a bit like relief. Because ironically, in a world that is starving for deep connection, many of us feel like we're still stretched over too many shallow relationships. And having everything frozen in time and everything cancelled was this kind of relief. It's the perfect excuse to not have to try to catch up with and, and keep track of, of just all the people that you kind of have on your list. We've got social media accounts that just have hundreds of connections, but we, which actually end up just really stressing us out. And so maybe even if you're on the extreme end, you're kind of even just hoping that for another lockdown. There's like a part of me that, like, that, that, is, that is true for. I can't wish that out loud because my wife, who's an extrovert, would, would destroy me if I even wished on another lockdown. She hated every single part of it. But as a culture, I think that it's the same is true. Whatever your kind of inclination is, we have a tendency towards passivity in relationships, of things just happening, kind of hoping it all works out, but not, not approaching relationships and connection and community in a particularly intentional way. And I reckon this is a sad reality, but I don't think it's particularly surprising given the world that we live in. We're surrounded by a worldview that says there is no overarching story. There is no kind of greater thing to live for. The thing that really matters most is your happiness. The thing that matters most is you. David Brooks sums up this, uh, this worldview of hyper-individualism as this. He writes, hyper-individualism, the reigning ethos of our day, is a system of morals, feelings, ideas and practices based on the idea that the journey through life is an individual journey that the goals of life are individual happiness, authenticity, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency. Hyper-individualism says, I belong to myself and no one else. Hyper-individualism puts the same question on everybody's lips, what can I do to make myself happy? So as a church, as, as we together think through the world that we live in and our place in it and, and approach the question, how is it that we are to thrive? What I want to get at today is how it is that the gospel, that is the Christian worldview, gives us both the motivation and the means to overcome our inclination towards passivity and individualism. I want to show you that the Christian worldview provides an answer for a world that is starving for deep connection. Namely, that the love of God, when it's known and it's experienced, leads to a life of intentional love for others. And so we're going to be looking at this passage that Jez read for us just before. It's, um, it's just six verses long. We're going to take it two verses at a time and follow through John's logic as he, as he writes this letter 2,000 years ago explaining how it is that the love of God affects us and tra- transforms us into people committed to loving those around us. So starting in verse 7, it will come up on your screens. He writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So the point here he's saying is that the motivation for being people who love one another is because God is a God of love. 
The logic is we should love because love's from God. If you don't love, it means that you don't know God because God is love. And this line, God is love, is a line that I think we shouldn't take for granted because I think a lot of us assume it, but it's entirely possible that, that God would not be a being of love, that God could just as easily be a God of hate or a God of indifference or just that God wouldn't even be personal at all. But throughout the Bible, again and again and again, it's this common refrain to say God is love. Now, I don't know what that, that brings up for you when you hear the phrase God is love. Uh, maybe you're just thinking, well, that kind of means that God is emotional. He's just a really emotional being. He's kind of like gushing just constantly. That the, He just can't even keep track of his emotions. Like an emo might sum themselves up by saying, I am sadness. It's the same as God saying, I am love, just because it's just a way of expressing, like, is that what's going on here? Or, or maybe some people, when they hear that line, you think, oh, God is love basically just means God is acceptance. God feels only love towards anything and everyone. There is nothing that anyone can do that would upset him, nothing that anyone can do would make him stop loving him. God, so God is okay with everything. Or maybe when you hear it, you say, you think it's, you know, God is love, does that just mean God isn't a, like a personal being that you can talk to and actually has a mind or anything like that, but, but God is love. Like when, when one person loves another person and they love them back and, and everyone's in, like loving each other, that is God. God is just this, this love that you find in the world around us. But I would say it's none of these things. The Bible is super clear about what it means when it says the phrase, God is love. And in the Bible, in, in, even the original language is written in, in Greek, the, the word for love is far more specific than the word love is in English. In, in English, the word love, I think, when you hear it, the, the first thing that comes to mind, I reckon, for most people is a feeling. But even then, there's a really broad kind of semantic range. So I could say, um, I love cream egg McFlurries, or I could say, I love my wife. And, and you would know straight away that, that I'm not saying the exact same thing, even though I'm using the exact same word. I thought long and hard this week about what I actually mean when I say I love cream egg McFlurries, um, <laughs> because it means something very particular, but I think it's pretty two-dimensional. When I say I love cream egg McFlurries, I literally just mean I feel good when that like, really unique caramel texture and like, the chocolate flakes and, and the McDonald's ice cream, which I don't think even is ice cream. I don't know what it's made out of. It's probably not any dairy in it, but that just makes me feel good. That's what, you mean, what I mean when I say that. When I say I love Sarah, my wife, there's a lot more caught up in it, and you kind of know that straight away. There's a romantic component, there's also commitment, there's attraction, there's friendship. Um, but even when you hear that, I think for most people in, in the Western world, the primary thing that comes to mind is feeling. It's a description of how I feel about someone. When the Bible talks about God's love, it's true to say God feels things about people, but primarily that's not what it's talking about. The, the word for love is is a word that is tied up with action. It's a follow-through love. And in particular, when the Bible says God is love, it's talking about how God acts towards us in the person of Jesus. And you'll see this in the next couple of verses as we read on. Verse 9 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is one of the clearest explanations of the gospel. Basically, it's saying God's love for us doesn't just exist in some kind of abstract, theoretical kind of feeling space, but that God's love for us is, is manifested in something concrete, something clear, in Jesus coming into the world. That God isn't just kind of this distant, passive being 
who feels something towards us, but God is a God who actually acted to show his love for us. And this isn't just this kind of unique thing in, in this letter, uh, in, 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 the, um, in the letter of 1 John. Throughout the Bible, you see again and again and again, God's love for us is attached to Jesus coming into the world and dying for us. I've got a few more verses I just want to show you just to kind of help you kind of see that this link, which is just so clear in the Bible. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then the famous verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. As you see that, it's just clear that again and again and again, God's love and Jesus coming into this world, giving himself for us, is just inseparable. Jesus manifested God's love, not just in the fact that, as many people know, Jesus taught on love, and he said you know, things like, love your neighbor as yourself, and, and, and even taught on radical teachings like, you need to love your enemy, but he actually personified it. Everyone that Jesus came into contact with, whether they were religious or irreligious, Jewish or non-Jewish, rich, poor, men, women, he, he showed his love with action. Being willing to touch and eat with and sit with people that the rest of society thought were unclean or not worthwhile. How he just gave his time listening to the broken and showed love to those who would fall through the cracks. But ultimately, more than the way Jesus lived his life, the way he died was how he showed his love. Jesus' picture of love wasn't this, this kind of nice, rosy picture, but it's a picture of just genuine sacrifice, of, of giving everything, even his life. It's a committed, costly, and painful love. Ravi Zacharias tells the story of a, a couple, uh, Gary and Mary Jean Chauncey, who were on a train which derailed and ended up in a river. And he tells the story about how this couple worked tirelessly to save their daughter, Andrea, who had cerebral palsy and was in a wheelchair, and how they, they fought with everything to, to somehow manage to get her to the shore and into the arms of rescuers, and yet in the process they drowned themselves. And when you hear a story like that, it, it is a tragic thing, but I don't know how else you could describe what's going on there other than it is an act of love. It is a powerful love, but it's just so much more than a feeling. It is, it is a love translated into action. Costly love. When you, when you hear the phrase, God is love, the image that should come to mind isn't this kind of big, cosmic, cuddle, warm, fuzzy thing in the sky. The picture of God being love is Jesus dying on the cross, naked, naked, alone, beaten, bleeding out, so that not only those who executed him, but you and me could have a way to God. That, that our, our rebellion, our evil, our... Our selfishness is put on him to open the door for a relationship. So we need, to, we need to keep that in mind as we think through what does it mean that God loves us and, and therefore what does it mean that we imitate him in loving others. That, that love is an action and love is costly. We need to hear this in a, in a society that does often boil love down to a feeling. In a society where marriages often end, um, in many cases, not because there was any great wrongdoing, not because there was necessarily unfaithfulness, but because the feeling went away, because loving was hard. 
God's love for us in the person of Jesus shows that, that God's love is costly and it is real. And so then John continues his explanation by, by explaining that, that God is love that's shown in this costly act of Jesus coming into the world and dying for us. And therefore, we should imitate that. We should pass it on. Verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. John's logic is because we've been loved, we should pass it on. And, and the first bit's kind of straightforward. It's, you know, God loved us, we ought to love one another. It's just kind of like how you'd be expected to kind of pay forward any, any good deed. If, if someone's nice to you, it's kind of makes sense to go and be nice to someone else. But, but the second half of this section in verse 12 is a little bit, I think, trickier to understand. Verse 12 says that when we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Which is basically to say, if we don't love one another, some aspect of God's love towards us is not complete. It hasn't reached its end. It's not, it's not perfect. It's not doing everything it was meant to do. There is an intent in God's love that it would rightly have a flow and effect. That's built into it. If you, if you, would, if you can picture a river um, you know, flowing from uh, the top of a, a high mountain down through, through forest, nurturing this forest all out to kind of grow, as it goes further and further down, it comes to some farmlands and it's used to kind of irrigate crops um, and nourish, nourish herds of cattle. Then the river continues through a village where it's used for drinking water and, and sustaining a whole population, down into a wide estuary teeming with life and out into the ocean. If you, if you have that picture in your head, I'd say that, that not having God's love for us result in flowing through into a life of loving others is like setting up a dam in the middle of this river. It's just preventing it from getting to where it's meant to go, blessing all it was meant to bless, and fulfilling its purpose. God's love is not complete. It doesn't reach its end unless it results in a community of love. That's what you get when you have a bunch of people loving one another. That's the community. The church isn't a byproduct of Jesus dying on the cross, like an unintended kind of accident, which turns out to be quite a nice thing. It's, it's, it's the goal of it. It's, it's, it's what he had in mind when he did it, to have people that would be changed from being selfish and, and passive and individualistic to, to actually caring for those around them. So if you're not committed to a life of costly giving love for others, I'd say you haven't yet understood exactly what it is that God's love for you is meant to achieve. So what I want to do, I just want to think then, in light of all this, what does this mean for us as a church? We're, we're looking to this year to, to thrive. Um, it's been a tough year for us as individuals. It's been a tough year as a church. It's been a really weird year for a church. Um, but how is it that we can thrive as people of love, living in a culture that promotes passivity and leads us to feeling just exhausted and worn out and tired? I want to say there are three things I think you can, you can get from this. Firstly is that love is a decision. I think when we're, when we're tempted to think about love as a feeling and, and, and as something that just happens in like, you know, falling love is something that just happens. But in most of life, love is a decision. And it's actually a string of decisions. Um, it actually, it takes effort to love people um, again and again and again. 
And if you've been part of a community, whether it's a family or a group of housemates or um, in, a, in a missional community that we've got here at City Light, you'll, you'll know this. Um, you don't end up with a really rich, deep community life unless you're actually making an effort, unless you make a decision to invest in it. Because it's costly. It's costly to put someone else before yourself. It's costly to give of your time, your energy, or your resources, or whatever it is. It's costly just to make yourself available for others. God chose to love us. When he saw us in sin and darkness, he, he made a decision to step out in love. It didn't just happen. He, he chose to do it. We too need to choose who we're going to love. We need to actually make a decision about this to, to, to decide who we're going to love. Um, which is also a decision, in one way, we're different to God. It's a decision of who we're not going to love as well. Um, which sounds a bit rough, but to wake up in the morning and say, look, I'm going to go and love the whole world today um, is, a, is a, a nice sentiment, I'm sure. But it can't translate into much because a plan to love everybody really is a plan to love nobody. So I want us as a church to be thinking through how it is that we can be deliberate in making decisions in, to intentionally love particular people. And that might be coming to terms with the fact that maybe you are overextended and COVID is the time to kind of hit the reset button and actually not to be passive but be intentional about who it is who go out and love. That's the first area. Love is a decision. Secondly, love is committed. We live in a culture where commitment um, doesn't really happen. It, it's countercultural. In pursuit of happiness and the self, most of us kind of just have, uh, you know, are pretty happy with change. We're happy to move on to the next thing. We think about the next job, the next place we're going to live, the next career move, whatever it is. My Netflix account, you, if you go on it, um, you'll see 50 TV shows that are, are like episode three. That's, that's just, I'm sure everyone else is the same, right? Because you can watch a couple of episodes and then it's like, ah, I, I tire of this. this that's, that's kind of Netflix. But to have, the, to have that view of people um, is to miss the opportunity to love. And we need commitment to people, and in particular, I'd say to community, to get us over the hump of disappointments that come with loving people. Um, people are really disappointing. Um, and I know that because I know I am. I'm an extraordinarily disappointing person for anyone who's had anything to do with me. But um, people will disappoint and Christian community will disappoint because people are sinful, broken, messed up, insecure, proud, confused creatures. And so without some degree of commitment, no one's going to love anyone for more than a, a week or two. And so I, I know for me it's so easy to think, oh, wouldn't it just be great if church was perfect? Like if it was just like easy and I always look forward to it and look forward to every single person in the church. Um, maybe if I went somewhere else, I'd like to be able to find this. Maybe you feel that about your small group or, or a small group you've been a part of before. But the reality is it doesn't exist. The, the perfect church, the perfect group of people does not exist because there's no perfect people. Bonhoeffer, a uh, 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 German theologian, um, says this line which I just find so helpful. He says, The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. And what he's getting at is, the, as long as you've kind of got this picture in your head of everything being perfect and you say, I'm, I've got a lot of love to give, I've got a lot of energy to give, but I'm going to hold off giving that love and that energy until it's perfect, until I find the, the best group of people that completely fulfill me and, 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 and everything. You're never going to get there. But he's saying what would happen is if every person just kind of let that dream go and just started loving those around them, started loving the, the small handful of people that are actually in their vicinity, what you would have is a pretty amazing community. 
So I want to I challenge you to think through, where does your commitment lie? Who are the people you are committed to loving even when it gets tough, even when it is costly and even when it is hard? And again, harking back to the first point, that's not going to be everyone. Who, is the, who are the people you are committed to? And finally, I want to say that love looks beyond. I don't even know who said this, but I, it's in my head, but I didn't come up with it. Um, Someone said the line, the church is the only organization that exists solely for its non-members. And there's something really true in that. Like, the, the church isn't just meant to be a community of love that looks inward and loves those inside of it. The church exists to be a beacon of love and of hope and of life to a world that is in desperate, desperate need of love. The church exists to be a conduit of actually God's love getting into the lives of people out there. At City Light, we want to be a church that is on about loving others, on about loving people out in, in Balmain and Roselle and Leafield and the Inner West and Sydney and beyond. We would be people who seek out opportunities to share this love in the same way that Jesus sought out the lonely and the marginalized um, and even how Jesus sought out people that seemed to have it all together and were wealthy and, and you know, on paper had it all sorted but deep down we're spiritually empty. We, we, we too are to be looking for these opportunities. I've been reminded this week that, that, that the gospel is powerful, that this Christian worldview isn't just some insignificant way of viewing life, but if you actually take hold of this and you, and you believe this and you know this, and you know this God who loved you in this costly way, it will transform the world for the better. You can't say that of every worldview. Um, this, this world is in desperate need. Sydney, like, you would all, you can all, I don't even have to argue for this. You know the loneliness, you know the, the hurt, you know the need that is out there. We want to continue as a church who is on about actively pursuing love. So I want to, I want to just end by issuing you with a bit of a challenge. Um, to actually this week reflect on who it is that God has called you to love. And depending on your personality type, you'll either love or hate this suggestion. And if you hate it, that's fine because... Um, it works for my personality type. It's just a suggestion. But if you're up for it, I, would, I want to encourage you to sit down in a block of time in your week and actually write down who are the people that God has specifically called you to love. Um, and that, that's going to be a mix of people, I'm sure. Like, hopefully it's broader than just your, your best friends, but hopefully, um, hopefully it's, it's actually a list, a list that's doable. Um, if you're struggling to think of any names at all to put down there, like I'd say your missional community here at City Light's a great place to start. If you're not in one of those, um, we want to get you into one of those if that's something you want, you want to be a part of. So, so let us know how we can, let us know you're interested so we can put you into a community that you can start loving. Um, but if your list, you, if you, you know, you're getting down to, to person number 50, um, it might actually be a time to actually reflect on, uh, on, do you actually trust God to be the primary carer in people's lives? to actually come to terms with the fact that you are limited and there is something unsustainable about having the burden on you personally to love 50 people long. So to write down a few names, something like, not, this is meant to be a really stressful exercise. It's meant to be something you left with like, okay, that's kind of what God's got me doing. And then to maybe just write down for each person on there, just what's that going to look like in action? Because it's all well and good to say I'm going to love them, but what's that going to mean? Is it going to be a text message, a phone call, a meal with them? To actually do that and then just to pray over that and hand that to God. Um, I'd encourage you to do that exercise. It might be really hard. I, like, I'm, I'm going to do it myself. I think I need to do it because I, I feel a bit like I don't exactly know, you know what that would look like for me at the moment. 
But it's something that um, I want us to be thinking through as a church. So like Jez said, tomorrow as well, we're going to be having a podcast episode go up, uh, chatting to Anna, who's one of the missional community leaders here at church, um, and also, yeah, also a counselor, and, and thinking through how can we be people who just care for one another, love for one another well, without burning ourselves out. And the hope would be that as we, as we imperfectly move towards this end as a church, that that would be a blessing, that that would be useful for this church, that we would continue this year to thrive as a community that love one another, as well as growing and, and looking out to the world around us for opportunities to love. So I'm going to pray now towards that end. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we do um, have this bedrock to, to build our lives on, that we can have a, a worldview that, that, um, that we can know that we are loved. We can know that you, you love us and we don't need to doubt that because you showed it in, in the way that you sent your son to die in our place. And that's done, that you've, you've acted in love, that we, we then can actually go out and love those around us. Lord, we pray that you'd be transforming us into people of love. We pray for City Light, this church, um, with all the challenges we've been through this year um, in, in being physically separate for a lot of it, that you would be growing us as a community, that you would be enabling us to actually live out this truth of loving one another. But Lord, help us also to look further afield. We want to be, we want to be a church that is actually, um, actually having an impact on this world, that we would be people who love those in need wherever we would find them. So we pray that you'd be helping us know what that means for us, Help us think on it and help, help us follow through with it, Lord. For anyone here who's still tr- not sure what they think of you, we just pray that, that you would be helping them know really truly that you are a God who loves them. Lord, we, pray, uh, we pray this knowing that you're a God who, who hears us and, and loves us and cares for us and, and wants this church to thrive. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish our time uh, with a couple of songs. So thank you guys.